Hey everyone, welcome to the Earthquake Science Center seminar series for June 22, 2022. Please mute your microphones and turn off your cameras. Uh, a couple of announcements before we begin. Uh, first of all, immediately after this, the reason why we're having a seminar a bit early this week is because there's the DEIA Town Hall. It's going to be from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., so please make sure you attend that. And um, next Tuesday, there will be a SCEC USGS webinar commemorating the 1992 Landers earthquake. It will be in the evening, so Tuesday, June 28 at 5.30 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. And uh, next week's talk will be by Gay Paris. Uh, it's going to be about an interactive viewer to analyze operational for aftershock forecasts and a practical application in southern Alaska. Um, Max has indicated that he's happy to take questions at any time, so you can put them in the chat, you can raise your hand and unmute yourself when we call on you. Um, and with that, I'd like to hand it off to Andy Michael to introduce today's speaker. Great, thank you, Leah. So I'm really pleased to introduce Max Schneider. Um, Max is a new Mendenhall Fellow with the Operational Aftershock Forecasting Group. So he'll be working with people such as Gene Hardebeck, Sarah McBride, Nicholas Vanderhaus, Morgan Page, Michael Burrell, Andrew Lenos, and myself. By working at Moffitt Field, Max is actually returning home. He actually grew up in Redwood City and even remembers attending a USGS public lecture on geology when he was in middle school. But Max is not a geologist or a geophysicist or any type of geoscientist but he has been geoscience adjacent. He started his uh, university career with a BS in statistics at UCLA. He then got a master's in mathematics, specializing in modeling and data analysis at the University of Potsdam, and also worked at the German Research Center for the Geosciences. There he worked with Daniel Schorlemer and others on earthquake forecast testing as part of the collaboratory for the study of earthquake predictability. Uh, Max came back to the U.S. for a Ph.D. in statistics at the University of Washington, where his advisors were Peter Goodterp and Yen Chi Chen. Um, we got to know Max when he reached out for advice on studying earthquake clustering in the Pacific Northwest and applying for a NEHRP external grant to fund part of his thesis work. Uh, he got that grant and continued to include us in his work. Uh, and I was lucky, along with John Gomberg, to uh, be on Max's committee. Um, the part of the thesis that was funded by NEHRP included the dirty details of earthquake catalogs and Bayesian estimation methods to determine epidemic type aftershock sequence model parameters for the Pacific Northwest. Um, the other part of his thesis was a study testing visualizations of aftershock forecasts that include uncertainty. Uh, he finished his PhD in December and then went back to Germany for a few months to finish one of the projects I'll talk about today on visualization of seismic hazard maps. So I'm really excited to have Max join our group because he's done this broad range of work that's so well aligned with our goals. And because we're known as the Statistical Seismology Group, so it's great that we finally have one person in the group who is actually a statistician. So welcome, Max, and take it away. So hello, everyone, and thank you, Andy, for that wonderful introduction. I'm going to share my screen. Um, please shout out if you can't see this. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be here, first and foremost, at USGS and to, to share with you this work on how we can make visual design effective for seismic hazard and aftershock forecast maps. So um, Andy uh, went through quite a bit of this kind of intro to me, but I, I guess I just wanted to point out that, you know, even though I've been trained in statistics and mathematics, um, as Andy mentioned, I, I've had these research experiences in earthquake science. And, you know, the, the, um, the first one was at this collaboratory for the study of earthquake predictability in Germany, um, where I 
I got a taste of statistical testing for earthquake forecast models, which got me excited to actually make my own in my PhD. Um, I, I was lucky to have both Andy and Joan on my PhD committee. Uh, and as Andy mentioned, the, the um, aim of my PhD dissertation was uh, to model the seismicity and the aftershocks of the Pacific Northwest. And this was a challenge because we had to merge together uh, multiple catalogs for the Canadian and the US PNW. Uh, this region has a lot of swarms, which are uh, spatiotemporal earthquake clusters that have totally different patterns and aftershock sequences. And so we had to uh, develop statistical methods to identify those swarms. Um, and then we, we wanted to model this catalog. Um, and, and so we took uh, a popular and well-performing aftershock model, this epidemic type aftershock sequence ETAS model. Um, it, it has some issues in its parameter estimation using standard approaches. So we developed a Bayesian technique for that. Um, and that allowed us to really study how the complexities of the PNW affect its aftershock parameters. So we looked at the different tectonic regimes that exist in the PNW and how swarms um, affect those aftershock parameters or not. So why are seismicity models important and relevant to us here? Well, um, among other reasons, when we, we fit a seismicity model to a catalog, um, we can we can get probabilistic forecasts for aftershocks following large earthquakes. So um, once a large earthquake happens, we can fit a model to the catalog, including it, and then we can simulate out multiple uh, periods of, of aftershock activity to get this probabilistic uh, forecast for what the aftershocks will look like following a big earthquake. So the USGS is currently doing this using a much older um, seismicity model, the Riesenberg-Jones 89 model, and it's soon moving to ETAS. Um, and when a forecaster is, is issuing a forecast from this kind of statistical modeling apparatus, there's a lot of operational choices that they have uh, in, in making that forecast. So they have choices in how the model is estimated, how we restrict it or not. Um, they have choices in the input catalog, um, how it's cut in, in time, in, in space, if it's centered right around the main shock or includes a larger area, magnitude cutoffs, and so on. So this is just a screenshot from um, a, a software that is used for the automated aftershock forecasting done at USGS that shows what a large number of choices the forecasters have. So I just wanted to touch on that one of my Mendenhall projects is actually going to be statistical testing um, similar to the style of this collaboratory for the study of earthquake predictability in how these operational choices impact the forecast, which ones actually lead to forecast skill and which ones can be then incorporated into our automatic procedures. But this talk is all about visualization, which um, I'm arguing is a form of risk communication for aftershock forecasts um, and, and any other form of, of earthquake model that, that we're trying to communicate. So at USGS, our aftershock forecasts are automatically communicated um, through our automatic procedures through a, a set of texts and tables. And the forecast table looks like this. So um, this one gives you the probability of at least one aftershock happening uh, with a, a magnitude cutoff um, 
in a particular time frame. So these tables, these texts have been developed using communication theories and best practices and, and user inputs. But research routinely shows that various user groups understand risk communication better when it's presented using visuals, using graphics, using maps. Um, and so the, the underlying question of this, this next Mendenhall project um, is how do we effectively represent such aftershock forecasts graphically? And I'm going to key in on that word effectively because I mean something very specific with it. I mean that we're trying to produce desired effects for users of the graphics. So um, in order to actually study that rigorously, I'm going to have to combine two different fields. The first is this wide interdisciplinary field of visualization science. So this is has it contains a lot of different um, topics and and uh, you know fields of study in itself. But what I'm going to be targeting here in, in this talk is color theory and its applications in various domains, as well as because we're going to be making maps from statistical from earthquake model output, we're going to need cartographical and statistical methods. And I'm I'm lumping that into this visualization science frame. So visualization science provides us um, the solution space for you know, getting solutions to this problem. But in order to actually understand their effects, we're going to need empirical social science. And um, the, you know, the starting point for a lot of this empirical work is just talking to people in structured ways through focus groups, through interviews. Um, we, we collect a lot of rich data from that that we can analyze in a qualitative fa fashion. I'll argue that a key next step is to run controlled quantitative experiments on users to understand those effects of different graphics. And um, what's going to be crucial is that the experiments use tasks that are centered around important um, user needs that have been identified in this previous qualitative step. So in this talk, I'm going to um, give two examples of previous work I've done where I've combined visualization and social science to attempt at least to improve um, products and communication of to the public of different earthquake models. Um, the, the first one is, is on seismic hazard mapping in a way that I'm arguing is principle-based. The second project is all about the uncertainty visualization for aftershock forecast maps and, and finding, att finding approaches that are effective. And, and I'll close with giving an outlook on, on how this previous work can inform what I'll do in the Mendenhall to visualize our forecasts at USGS. So this first project on seismic hazard maps is joint work with Fabrice Coton at the uh, German Research Center for Geosciences and University of Potsdam and Pia Johanna Schweitzer, who's a sociologist at the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies in Potsdam. Um, it was done over the course of several really wonderful research days, and um, this work is currently being prepared for publication. So I'll have to convince exactly no one here that seismic hazard is, um, is just the ground shaking that's due to earthquakes. Um, it, it can be assessed using physical models, um, so usually this is a combination of a source model that incorporates within it a seismicity rate model, like the ones I developed in my dissertation. 
as well as a ground motion prediction equation. Now, all, both of these modeling components have a number of inputs, parameters, choices that the modeler has to make. And if, if the modeling is done over a wide range of inputs and parameters to these model components, then we can get a probabilistic assessment of the seismic hazard of a region. So this is essentially a distribution of what um, some hazard level might be at any given location. Since this is location-based, we can make maps of seismic hazard. And these maps um, are regularly used, they're fundamental actually, for regional planning, for uh, setting building codes and seismic building standards in seismic zones. So the starting point of this work is the German seismic hazard map. Um, and it was, you know, th this comes straight from a paper in, uh, that describes the, the seismic hazard assessment for Germany. And this map shows something very specific. It's the hazard level that has a 10% of exceedance, a 10% probability of being exceeded um, over 50 years. Uh, and, and that's the hazard level that each of those runs in the probabilistic ensemble is um, represented by. And if we take the mean over all the runs in the ensemble, we get a map that looks like this. Um, so here I'm, I'm, I'm taking the peak ground acceleration as my measure of ground shaking. So one, um, so we'll all argue here that this map has some disadvantages, and um, one of them becomes clear when we plot the map in grayscale. Um, so there's something kind of intuitively going wrong with the colors um, uh, in this seismic hazard map. Now the German map is in great company because a lot of national and global seismic hazard maps use the same exact or very similar uh, color scale. We see a familiar one in the top right. Um, so these disadvantages I'm arguing are kind of shared across how we're doing seismic, happening, seismic hazard mapping um, in lots of places. Another issue that we'll see just by, by visual examination is that the hazard map legend um, extends past the largest uh, value in this map of the mean peak ground acceleration. So we can see that the, the largest value is this orange one here, but the legend goes far beyond. And I, I mentioned that you know this map comes from a paper where they were looking at more than just the mean of that probabilistic ensemble of, of hazard estimates. They were looking at the median, they were looking at different years, they were looking at different percentiles of uh, both like 16th, 18th, 84th percentiles of the um, hazard ensemble. Uh, the, the same color scheme is used for an interactive web portal based on this analysis for German seismic hazard. Uh, so one thing I want to make clear from the outset is that um, even though this, this color scheme and, and this legend could be argued to be effective for comparative maps where we're trying to compare um, one map across many others for interactive portals like this, we're not focused on that in this project. What we're designing for is simply static, so not interactive, and single map representations of hazard, not ones we're, we're comparing over multiple maps, because that's actually how um, hazard, seismic hazard is uh, consumed and, and, and um, presented to the majority of its um, audiences outside of academic literature. 
So the guiding questions for this work is, is what could then be improved with the color palette and what I'm calling the data classification scheme. That's the way that um, all of these hazard values are getting kind of classified into different bins that then get assigned a color. So there's been some previous work on, on hazard mapping design, and it usually takes so-called best practices and then evaluates them with focus groups. Now, the issue here is that these best practices are very rarely specified. If they are, they're, um, they're not evidence. We, we, we don't get you know, what's backing them up, and they're kind of presented as like a recipe. Use blue, not green. Do this, not that. So what we need are systematic guidelines for making these design choices for hazard maps. Um, and, and there's a lot of literature that could help us with this. So we surveyed the uh, color visualization and cartography literature and specifically looked at empirical studies that examined how specific map choices can affect um, things that we want people to do with these maps read them correctly, perceive and interpret them appropriately. So um, we're, we're trying to get evidence-backed criteria here um, that, that relate to, that, that are empirically backed for, for things that we want um, users to do with the maps, and specifically for color palettes and for classification schemes. So we then use these criteria and a, a set of pre-specified communication targets, messages that we want people to get from the map to redesign the German hazard map. And then I'll show a quick evaluation of that redesigned map against the original to see whether or not we actually satisfied those targets. So the, the first problem we want to tackle is the color palette. And for this, I have to introduce a color model. So there's tons of models that um, that try to break down color into distinct dimensions. I'll be presenting a really simple one, the hue saturation lightness model, but it's it's going to help us understand the um, the best criteria for choosing color palettes. So in these in this hue saturation lightness model, every color in the world can be represented with a, a value for hue that goes from 0 to 360, winding around the color wheel, um, a value for lightness that goes from 0, which is pure black, and the, the higher the lightness value, the lighter the color is, and a value for saturation, which goes from 0 to 100 also, and um, at 0 maps the color to grayscale, the higher the saturation, the um, the, the deeper, more intense the color actually is. So the rainbow color palette, which is what I've been picking on in the previous seismic hazard maps, um, has some well-documented issues. Uh, so it's well known that it doesn't preserve a couple key things for color, namely its perceptual uniformity. So perceptual uniformity um, for a color palette means that if we take a pair of colors um, it's their perceptual distance from each other should be the same no matter where they are on the color palette. Perceptual distance is largely determined by hue and lightness. So if we look at, at the pair of blues here, um, you know, we go down in hue and lightness, but we go up in those color parameters um, in pairs further along the color palette. Now, in a, a recent Nature paper, authors have proposed perceptually uniform palettes where the, the perceptual distance between pairs is the same across the color palette in hue and lightness. 
Another issue with the rainbow palette is that it doesn't preserve color order. So if we took 10 equally spaced colors along the rainbow palette, their order by hue is different from their order by lightness. In a perceptually uniform palette, you have a single intuitive order as the colors progress through. And as I mentioned, both of these color attributes are largely determined by the color's lightness and then their hue. So um, the literature tells us kind of what are the things we should we should have in our palette in order to preserve both of those um, color attributes. So if the the decrease in the color lightness across the palette is monotonic, then we've preserved perceptual order. And if it's linear, then we've preserved perceptual uniformity. These are at least argued by by a number of um, authors, and and we can see that in the in the baseline map with this color rainbow color palette, um, the lightness profile is far from linear, and it's certainly not monotonic. So we we don't have order, and we don't have uniformity in this palette. Another key color attribute is discriminability. We should be able to um, make out the different colors along the palette and in the map. And that's been argued to be driven by consecutive differences in hue and in lightness. And so again, in this hue profile for this baseline map, we, we certainly don't have monotonicity that we would need for discriminable colors. There's further considerations we have to make when choosing colors. So one is that colors have been shown to evoke uh, psychological associations in, in humans. Uh, these can differ by culture. So in Western cultures, blues and greens have been associated with being peaceful, tranquil, and secure. Um, oranges and reds have been often associated with danger and risk, and that's a finding that actually transcends a multitude of cultures. And yellow has been associated with caution and with waiting. So we, we really want those colors that we choose to be relevant for the um, for the for the phenomenon that we're mapping. And a final consideration is that we want accessible and um, inclusive color maps. And so uh, our colors should be colorblind friendly and easily visible in the map and legend. You can see how folks with different color vision deficiencies have um, how the color wheel looks there. Um, we want to make sure that folks who have color vision deficiency can also make out our maps correctly. The second problem that I'm targeting here is how to improve the classification scheme for hazard maps. So how do we classify this continuous distribution? This is the density plot of those mean PGA values um, into a discrete scale. So what the baseline map does is it, it, it takes these kind of equally spaced um, uh, class breaks, and then it, it kind of changes the the width of the break uh, as the um, PGA gets higher, and it also goes out to much much larger PGAs than does the than what's plotted in the mean PGA um, map. So there's lots of other approaches we can take here. Um, we could split the um, the data range exactly equally by interval by quantile if we do it by interval then we're we're really accentuating the the kind of higher part of the distribution by giving it more colors if we do it by quantile then we're distinguishing the the lower parts of the distribution more um but so these don't the issue with these is that they they don't actually take into account what the the features of the data set are 
And so what we want is some sort of um, quantitative approach that can split up this data such that we group values that are closer together. And a really standard approach for this is um, Fisher classification. Um, so given some number of classes, this approach finds the, the class breaks. Um, by the way, I'm using class breaks and scale breaks interchangeably. Um, so it finds the, the class breaks that minimize the within class variance of the data. So this is a measure of the similarity of the data within a class versus outside of the class. And it's it's become quite standard in, in different GIS systems. It's also called Jenks breaks and natural breaks. Um, so there's a ton of different approaches for how to do this classification. Um, folks ha have studied this for decades in cartography and statistics. There's been actually very little empirical literature that studies their effects. And so based on kind of the ideas in the methodological literature, uh, we're proposing three key criteria for hazard maps. The first is that classes should contain all data that are alike, but then break apart data that are not alike. Um, ideally using some quantitative measure that's based on the data and not based on, you know, whatever the round numbers are in that data set. The second criterion is that there should be just enough, but not too many class breaks, so that we can see the primary patterns in the data. Th this, this criterion is kind of about the number of categories, which again doesn't have um, strong empirical literature behind it, but we do know that um, th there have been uh, experiments that have shown that uh, Folks do worse when there are a large, large number of class breaks, um, and also when when we use a continuous color palette to uh, represent the data, uh, and and this motivates the the need for a classification scheme in the first place. And finally, the class breaks that we choose should ideally communicate something meaningful about the data. If there's some meaningful values or change points, those should be included as class breaks. So. As we were redesigning the German seismic hazard map around these criteria, we sometimes had multiple solutions that, that met the criteria. So we had to think carefully about what were the key principles about hazard that we wanted to communicate with this map. So we came up with four. The first one is that seismic hazard is not spotty. It's something that changes continuously in space. The second one is somewhat related is that areas of hazard are not just where previous earthquakes have occurred during earthquake catalogs, but they we can have areas of hazard that are off of those previous earthquake locations. The second, the third point is that the, um, the highest end of hazard is especially detrimental. And so extreme hazard has to be differentiable from high hazard. And finally, the spatial patterns of hazard may be more important, say, for situational awareness than the specific magnitude of the, the hazard values. And then finally, in the German context, we wanted to spotlight this particular PGA of 0.4 meters per second squared because it's the hazard level where German size and building codes have to be applied for ordinary buildings. Okay, so the first thing we did was was change the scale breaks for the map. Um, we we split the the PGA values at 0.4, that critical PGA value, and we um, used three breaks from the values up to 0.4 and five breaks for the values above. Um, we did these with the Fisher classification uh, algorithm. We tried actually a number of different 
uh, classification schemes, but rejected the others because they didn't um, support those hazard principles that we wanted to communicate. And I can show some in, in the appendix slides if, if interested. Um, and, and we also experimented with different numbers of hazard, of, of um, classes above and below the 0 0.4 and, and one with the smallest number that we felt could effectively um, communicate the, the um, main spatial patterns on the map. We then modified the colors. So for the um, lower colors, we chose uh, three perceptually uniform shades of yellow um, that were linear in their lightness and in their hue, and then five perceptually uniform shades um, from orange to red to brown. Um, again, getting approximate linearity in lightness and in hue. In, in hue, so we the last color we took kind of off the palette so that it could be more distinguishable, this, this extreme end from the higher end below it. Um, so these, these are colors that have strong uh, cultural connotations with caution to hazard. S sorry, is there a question? Another one. Oh, man, Elaine. I think it's straight noise, Max. Just go ahead. Uh, okay, I'll keep going then. Uh, so, so that was our um, kind of redesigned final map, and we evaluated it with a survey with graduate students of geosciences and engineering. Our evaluation questions um, targeted how accurately folks could read this map, uh, and how how um, it affected their awareness of each of the hazard principles and also their general preferences between the the baseline and the redesigned map so they answered questions under both and the difference in the responses indicates if either map better communicates one of the seismic hazard principles so i'll just show you a few very quick results here these were again our five key principles um and and one so four key principles one key threshold and um, there were two where we where we saw a real difference. So for each one of these, we asked a, several questions that were um, about a city on the map, but that kind of were related to each of these hazard principles. And we, we gave a statement about that place and we asked for their agreement with that statement. Strong agreement indicates awareness of the this hazard principle. And what we can see is that the, the redesigned map um, increases the awareness of these first two principles about hazard changing continuously in space, hazard not being just where previous earthquakes have occurred relative to the baseline map. So I, I'm happy to share more in, uh, about that if there's questions, but um, I'll move back now to aftershock forecast map and this project for my dissertation. Um, so this is joint work with my PhD uh, supervisor, Peter Gutorp, and another environmental statistician, and two cognitive psychologists um, and decision scientists who've really helped give me a frame for how to tackle these, these kind of user testing questions. And this work was recently published in Natural Hazards and Earth System Sciences. So aftershock forecasts, um, not only are they automatically produced by national agencies such as ours, but they're widely sought after and used by a variety of user groups. Um, so this is an example of, of what an aftershock forecast map could look like. This is from Italy um, and it shows the, the weekly, like next week's probability of an earthquake of at least an MMI7 happening across the country.
Now, this probability of occurrence of exceedance, it doesn't actually communicate the uncertainty in the model, in this probabilistic um, forecasting modeling that we do. And the issue with that is that if we omit uncertainty, cognitive research finds that users will form their own individual representations of where uncertainty is high or low. Um, and they can also make worse decisions relative to a map that shows uncertainty. So how do we best depict the uncertainty for these aftershock forecast maps? Well, my starting point here was to interview emergency managers in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and, and from those, I, um, I, I got a sense of, of a couple important things that an uncertainty visualization should communicate for an aftershock forecast map. So um, if it's to be effective, it should be it should communicate where are the shore bets on the map? Where is an aftershock very likely? Where is an aftershock very unlikely? It should also communicate um, where the, the forecast might be lower, but the uncertainty is so high that we could have a potential surprise there. So where are the surprises on the map? So let me introduce you now to our candidate uncertainty visualizations. Uh, so the first one is the most traditional approach to show the forecast next to the uncertainty. So what we're showing here in the forecast map is the, the expected number of aftershocks following some large earthquake for the next week after some large earthquake. Um, and, and again, this is we're doing this forecast in a probabilistic way um, over multiple model runs, which means that for each of these locations on the map, each of these grid cells, we have a whole uh, distribution for this number of aftershocks that is forecasted. Um, so what we're showing in this map is like the median of the distribution at each of these uh, locations on the map. And what we're showing on the right is the standard deviation of um, of that distribution for each of these locations. So these maps were, were cooked up for this experiment, so don't look too closely at them. Um, they, so the, the forecast map actually comes from some seismicity model output from my PNW uh, model uh, where I cropped it. I think this was around Mount Rainier, um, but I scaled the values up and, and made some other modifications to, to get kind of a clean experimental stimulus. The uncertainty map was cooked up just for this experiment, so we had um, the right combinations of high and low forecast and uncertainty. So another way of showing both the forecast and the uncertainty is to use transparency. In this map, um, again, we use the same colors for the forecast level, and the transparency of those colors indicates its uncertainty. The more transparent the color is, the more uncertain the forecast is. So transparency is, um, is commonly found to perform well in uh, these kind of perceptual experiments for uncertainty visualizations for heat maps like this, especially for the natural hazards. So this is like the, um, the visualization best practice for, for showing uncertainty on a map like this. Now, a statistical best practice would be to, to show the bounds of a confidence interval. So that's what we do with these two maps. Um, the left map shows for each of those locations the, the lower bound of a 95% confidence interval. So the, the lowest number of aftershocks that are still reasonably likely, the 
so the right map here shows the upper bound of that interval, the, the highest number of aftershocks um, consistent with the forecast. So uncertainty is depicted here in a, a you have to infer it by comparing the colors across the maps. So if at a location the colors are the exact same, then we know the uncertainty is low. If the colors are very different, then the uncertainty is higher. And finally, we're comparing these against um, just showing the forecasted rate of aftershocks, the number of per each grid cell, um, without their uncertainty, which is our current practice. So we experimented um, with, uh, so on the platform Amazon MTurk, with nearly 900 participants from California, Oregon, Washington. Um, each participant saw exactly one of those visualization conditions that they were randomly assigned to, um, either an uncertainty visualization or the rate only control. Uh, and we pre-registered the experimental design and the analysis plan as a best practice from social science. So there were three tasks that they did, two were map reading tasks, but I'm gonna concentrate on this, what we call the comparative judgment task. So here we show two marked areas on the map that had different forecasts, and we asked them, where will there be more aftershocks next week? And um, we, we uh, changed the rate and the uncertainty of, the, um, of those locations systematically to match those two communication goals I mentioned earlier. So the shore bet trials, um, and there were, there were a number of these trials. Um, so here they had locations that had the same low uncertainty, but a clear difference in forecasted rate. So here location two is the shore bet to have more uh, aftershocks next week because it has a much higher rate and they both have low uncertainty. We also had a number of surprise trials that where the locations had the same forecasted rate and a difference now in their uncertainty. So here, location two is uh, more of a potential surprise to have more aftershocks next week because of its much higher uncertainty, they both have low forecast. So what results did we find? Well, we didn't see any differences by um, the uh, visualization conditions uh, when showing shore bets. So, so across all those shore bet trials, I took the proportion of trials where the participants selected the higher rate location, which is the shore bet because both of them have the same uncertainty. And I aggregated those um, proportions where they, where they selected that location by users in each of these visualization groups. And we see they're all the same and they're all really close to 100. Folks can track down the shore bets on the map. The situation was really different for the surprise trials. So here again, I'm showing the proportion across all of those different surprise trials. We did like 20 plus trials um, where the per participants selected the location of higher uncertainty when they both had the same rate. So that's the potential surprise to have more aftershocks. For the rate only condition, they didn't see that difference in uncertainty. We didn't show them. So it was roughly around 50-50 but there was a difference in the UVs. So um, for the adjacent and transparency conditions, folks were a lot more likely to select the area of lower uncertainty when presented with this decision, with this judgment, um, whereas it was opposite for bounds. They, they, they um, saw 
the the higher uncertainty location as being more of the potential surprise um, with quite a large spread. And, and I can explain that spread if, if anyone's interested. There's actually kind of an interesting story there. But in the interest of time, I'll, I'll just kind of jump to our conclusions here, which is that so I glossed over the map reading tasks, but all visualizations could be read with sufficiently high accuracy with, with some slight differences between the, the conditions. Um, but participants really differed by condition in how they interpreted uh, uncertainty. So when we showed them the adjacent and transparency maps, there's this common interpretation that fewer aftershocks should happen where the forecast is uncertain. But for bounds, it was the opposite interpretation entirely. So our takeaway here is that if you want to communicate potential surprises on your map, then um, you're, you should at least consider showing your uncertainty using the bounds of an interval. OK, so now let's come back to where, where we are now, at least where um, I am presently in, in, in Moffitt Field, USGS. Uh, and so um, we're, we're trying to improve how we visualize these aftershock forecasts uh that we make as an agency so so this is a forecast from the 2020 um sequence that struck southwest puerto rico and and you'll see that there's just a lot of words and numbers um we did for this particular sequence uh try to make the salient information from this from our forecast more visual with this kind of standalone ad hoc product we we also have some other products that are currently being tested where we're using colors and these bars to um to visualize the forecast um, this is currently being tested in puerto rico um so you know we come back to this guiding question that i started with which is how do we effectively represent this operational aftershock forecast oaf graphically uh, and to, to do this question justice, we have to split it up into several pieces. So which graphical types are going to be most successful? Should we make bar charts like the ones I, I showed in the previous slide or line charts? Should we make maps given that these are um, spatially varying forecasts? Should we have some novel visualizations that combine different chart types? Then who are the users that we're designing for? So we've previously focused on specialist users, but we're now releasing these forecasts publicly. So we, we should probably start thinking about non-specialists as well. Uh, what are the uses that these users have of our forecasts? And so this is a very, very long list, but things that commonly come up when we talk to them are situational awareness, delivery of this information to um, to you know different audiences that they have making decisions about managing resources um, but again this this list really goes on and then finally what are our communication goals and what should we prioritize in communicating is it the number of aftershocks or the probability of a damaging aftershock is it um you know the the spatial or temporal patterns that we're going to be able to better model uh when we move to the etas forecasting system and what about the uncertainty in the forecast, which can be really high, especially at the onset of an aftershock sequence? So um, I'm, I'm proposing the following roadmap to how to design and test uh, OAF products for the USGS. So the first step is just to interview uh, the target users that in, in the target user groups that we've identified. 
Um, so this creates a, a, a rich and, and a big set of qualitative data that um, is, is an input into the second step. That's what this error represents. Uh, so the second step is to do a rigorous qualitative analysis, doing qualitative coding of that interview data to identify what are the key communication needs for OAF. So um, understanding those user needs is going to input into developing the visualizations that we're going to test. We want to make sure that we only consider visualizations that will actually align with those user needs. Also going into the step are, of course, best practices that are empirically backed um, in visualization science, as well as previous focus group research that we've done at USGS. So I think of this, this chunk as kind of the qualitative part of this work. And then the, the next part is the quantitative experiment part. So we'll need tasks for our experiment um, that can measure outcomes directly linked to those communication needs that we've identified in step two. And then once we have that, we can develop and run an experiment. So we're going to experiment on all of these different visualizations we've developed in step three using tasks coming from step four, where the experiment is aligned again with the communication needs that, um, that we've identified in step two. So we want to make sure that the, the experiment really reflects what it is people do with our forecasts. Finally, the results of that experiment are, are going to um, inform our recommendations for, for better OAF products. And uh, this work will be in partnership with uh, the Bureau of Humanitarian Assistance Earthquakes Program. This is a, a program within the US Agency for International Development. Um, and it'll allow us to study how well these different products do in different countries. So not just US, but also Nepal and Mexico, which have been hit hard recently by, by earthquakes. So our aim here is to understand how these effects differ by country, but um, really it's also to, to find products that can serve multiple user groups. And I'll conclude by saying that, you know, I chose these pictures from these different earthquakes that, that all have people in them, because ultimately what we're doing is earthquake social science and, and to try to improve societal earthquake resilience through the better communication of aftershock risk. So I have a few pages of references here, and now I'll thank you for your attention and happy to take questions now by email or at any point later. Thanks so much, Max. Um, okay, well, we can open the floors of some questions now. So um, if you've got a question, you can put it in the chat um, or you can raise your hand. We have a, we have a raised hand already. Um, hi. Uh, hi, can you hear me? Yes, hi. Yeah, hi, I'm calling from an airport right now. So um, apologies if I, if I drop out. Um, I really appreciate the talk and I have one, you know, very simple question about if you go back to the slide showing your updated uh, uh, seismic hazard map for Germany, yes. I noticed that there was no special color, like a white color or something for zero. And I'm wondering if there's a value in um, in coloring the, the zero value differently on the color bar, because I assume that, let's say it was white, I assume that every, everywhere has some small amount of peak ground acceleration. 
So uh, uh, I'm asking this because I, I think that users might come away with a, a different perspective if they knew that that everywhere was non-zero, but very small, even in northern Germany. So what do you think about that? So I just want to make sure I understood your question. You were you're saying that um, uh, we we could um, use the color white to represent areas of hazard that are that are at a level of zero meters per second squared PGA. Yeah, because I exactly I assume that there will be nowhere on the map that is truly zero. But as as colored right now, um, you know, it's it's sort of trivial, but um, one could come away with this uh, from this thinking either that there is effectively no uh, hazard in northern Germany, or they could come away with it thinking there, there's some very small hazard. And I think that's a that's a subtle distinction, but it, it might it might matter in um, public consciousness, or at least I'm wondering if you think it matters. Yeah, um, th that's a great question, and and I'm it makes me think back to some of the older maps that I've seen for hazard in Germany, uh, where actually they did use white, so like you know like the color of um, that I, I have all of the area around Germany colored now um, to color in some of these very light yellow zones that are at the lowest hazard levels. Um, so one thing that was important to our group in making this redesign was that we did uh, communicate the message that there were um, that as the research shows, like there is no area of Germany that's aseismic. Uh, and th that's one of the reasons why we went with different shades of yellow to represent the, the lower levels, including the absolute lowest level, which is the lightest shade of yellow. Um, I, I do think, I mean, I think this is an empirical question, whether um, folks would come away with a different impression of this northern Germany, of the hazard levels in northern Germany, if it's light yellow versus white. Um, I think that'd be a really interesting question to test. And I, I see, like I mentioned, lots of maps where white is used. Um, my guess is that there is a, a strong association with white as being a lack of um, something when, when we're looking at a color map like this. And so I, I would guess that that there would be a, a pretty strong effect of that color choice. I guess, I guess what I was getting at was that um, there being some yellow there might telegraph that there is some hazard, but mm -hmm. the color bar says that zero could be included within that yellow. So um, mm -hmm. if you mm -hmm. took zero out and said greater than zero, you know, it's, ah. it's almost trivial, but um, but it seems like it would affect the way people think about it. Okay, um, th th that's a great observation, and I, um, yeah, I, I, I think how we communicate legends like this is actually really interesting. And one thing that we found in the open-ended questions is that there was a sizable number of people who didn't understand um, this labeling. Uh, we And we kind of prototyped labels that were centered at the color. So like single labels for each of these color swatches centered at it, as opposed to what we, what we ended up designing, which is um, these double labels at both ends. 
and and this was really preferred uh, among the engineers that we kind of did our internal testing with and not as preferred, I think, by um, the the survey sample that we we, we evaluated with. So, yeah, I, I, I but I, I see your, your, your point definitely, which is that, you know, if, if that said zero plus, that might actually um, communicate as well that there is no non-zero hazard area. Right, thank you. Andy, did you want to jump in? Yeah, actually, um, so I'll just do my camera too. The great, great talk, Max, you cover so much stuff. Um, I'm going to agree here that maybe part of the problem here is just simply don't put zero on the on the legend um, because because you don't want to communicate that. Um, I'm gonna, I'll make a comment on white, which is I think maybe this where I, I can't remember if I've told you, but, but apparently when the much derided and correctly derided terrorism color scale was created, the lowest level initially was actually white. And mm. George W. Bush as president said, you can't use white because that's the color of the paper. So um, <laughs> I think you have to, <laughs> I think that might have been one, one of the best decisions uh, made about that color scale was not to use white. Um, it's, it's sort of a weird color. And, and here you're using it, of course, for not on the map. Right. The last thing that you said you, is, is about the labeling was who liked it, that the engineers liked it. I guess the question really becomes, um, who are hazard maps for? And I'm going yeah. to be specific in terms of maps and not models, because we don't call it the National Seismic Hazard Map. It's the National Seismic Hazard Model. And when we talk to um, engineers, for instance, about aftershock hazard, um, you know, there's a really fantastic engineer who works with the uh, East Bay Municipal Utility District, East Bay Mud. Um, you know, and, and she was very clear. You know, give me hazard curves. So if the engineers are, you know, going to our website, downloading hazard curves, that's what they want. Um, who is the map actually for? And it may be that the map is more important for non-technical users and therefore mm -hmm. should be designed and, and labeled for them. Um, so I think that's, that's a really interesting question. Who is really using the map? And, uh, you know, I think Mark put a nice comment in the chat about uh, that, that, you, that you, you and he should talk about the, uh, the U.S. National Seismic Hazard map projection of the model. So um, yeah, really interesting things. I had one other sort of silly question, which is it, you have a color scale where you present your results on this experiment about the maps, mm -hmm. but you I, you use red for agreement. So I was a little <laughs> surprised by, by your choice of color scale there. Um, I don't know if you want to defend that or not, or if oh. someone else has a better question. <laughs> I, I wanted to capture your attention on what I knew would be a very quick slide. So. <laughs> That that was my justification. Okay, thanks a lot, Zach. That's great. Thank you. Max, you've got lots of thanks and congratulations in the chat. Check them out. Oh, um, lots of emojis too. And <laughs> um, it looks like Oliver Boyd put two questions in the chat. Do you want to do you want to ask them yourself? We can. I can read them. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't mind asking. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so the, I guess the first one's sort of similar to the maybe your previous question. And I was just wondering why uh, you didn't change the hue to something like blue or green for the, the colors less than uh, 0 0.4 meters per second to better distinguish, at least for you know people that can distinguish the colors, 
the difference at that classification? Yeah, that's a great question, and you know that's that's really one of the big differences between um, the baseline and the redesign. Um, we did it for several reasons. The the first is that blue and green have these um, pretty well reported, supported, uh, empirically evidenced psychological and I would say cultural connotations with, um, as I wrote here. Uh, being soothing, tranquil, secure. Um, I mean, these are like on average across a lot of people within a culture, right? And, and like, this is a, a pretty, like as a statistician, I, I, I do have some trepidation with that line of research because I, I think it is really hard to make these um to do those studies but I, I i chose example studies here that i i think are actually pretty solid and um and and so we we wanted to avoid those connotations because um because we we didn't want to include aspect like we, we didn't want people to look at a blue and a green region on a map and say okay there's no hazard there it's peaceful it's secure you know have that immediate and kind of pre-attentive um association with those colors and then also as i as i pointed out here you know we, we want to choose colors that are accessible to everyone including folks with color vision deficiencies and so like red and green um, for folks who have these two most common red green color blindness look really really similar and so it's going to be hard for people to tell apart like the two ends of the scale here um, for folks yeah who have that color vision deficiency Okay, and then I, I guess the, the other question is if you could recommend any tools for for building and testing color maps to ensure that they have the uniformity and the linearity and monotonic changes and uh, hue and all that sort of stuff. Totally. So, um, like, I think almost every, if not every, major um, data analysis software statistical software, Python, R, MATLAB, et cetera, have tools that allow you to pull out the lightness and the hue and the saturation of colors. That's again, just one color model. There are other color models that purport to be more um, kind of perceptually aligned, um, but I, I think this is a simple one and there's a lot of experimental evidence supporting um, that like, especially this lightness variable is, a driver of um, perceptual uniformity and order. So I would say just look at the lightness and and maybe look at your map and grayscale. Um, if you want to get suggestions for how to choose a palette in the first place, one place that I started that I, I tend to start and where I, I started with this color palette is um, something called R Color Brewer. Um, it's a website as well as an R package, and I can put a link in the chat after the talk, um, but it, it has well-designed uh, color palettes for different kinds of, so different data types. Um, 
so I, I think those are good starting points, but I, I think you're going to have to make slight adjustments for your particular need, your particular map. And, and so you're going to want to go under the hood a bit and look at the lightness and hue profiles. Hey, thanks so much. I don't want to cut you guys off, but it's it's 11 and we want to encourage everyone to jump over. Yes. Um, so thanks so much, everyone, for the awesome discussion. We're all going to hop off and go to the town hall. So we'll see you all there. Thank thanks. you, everyone. Thanks, Max.